The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Man, I hope that everyone in this room goes on to do great things with and for God. But may we never be people that lose sight of the fact that it is purely by God's grace that you've been saved. And that sometimes he may even want to do great things through you as an example to show that he can do it through anyone. Right? That's what Paul says. Man, he picked me because I'm the foremost of sinners. And so if he can save me and do this through me, then he can do it through anyone. He never lost that kind of mentality. And so he cautions us, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. It's easy for us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Matter of fact, I would argue that it's natural. Apart from God working in your life, you will have a tendency to think that you are the most important person in the world. And it's not that you would, if someone asked you, hey, do you think you're the most important person in the world? Of course, all of us would say, no, I don't think that. But who do we spend most of our time thinking about? Us. Right? Like, like self consumes our thoughts like, at, to, to a crazy degree. And in some ways, this is kind of hard to help, right? I mean, you tend to think about the people that you're around and who is the one person that you're always around? <laughs> you. But this, this comes down to that idea where John was talking last week and, and the scripture was saying that we need to be uh, transformed by the renewing of our mind. Naturally, we are incredibly selfish people. It's, it's how we start out. I love my daughter so much, but the only person she can really think about is herself. She can't think about uh, the needs of others or concerns of others. Uh, and, and frankly, a lot of us never really grow out of that. Like, we, we just get stuck thinking only about ourselves. But God wants to transform our minds so that we would start to be able to think not just about ourselves, but that we would actually have minds that are thinking about him all the time. Because, as I said, who are you with all the time? You. But guess what? If you're a Christian... You have the Holy Spirit, and you're also always in God's presence. And so as we become cognizant of that, we're able to start thinking more and more about him, and our life is able to start becoming more and more about him rather than just about ourselves. So we're to be people that have sober judgment, that don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. It says that this sober, measure, that this sober judgment should be according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, Paul is kind of brief in some of what he writes here, so there's actually a couple places in this passage where there's some translation choices that had to be made, uh, and we're, we're not exactly sure which thing he's trying to communicate. So I'll give you an example here. Uh, there's a couple ways that we could understand this idea of the measure um, of faith that God has assigned. One theory is that Paul is saying, man, this is a command to view ourselves humbly in light of the faith that we have, meaning the common faith, the gospel, the belief uh, that, that we are sinners saved by grace. That should be something that humbles us, right? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but according to the measure of faith that God has given you. Remem remembering the gospel stops us from thinking too highly of ourselves. This is certainly a true sentiment. Um, I actually think Paul is probably communicating something else here primarily, though, which is that uh, we could see this as a command to be honest about the amount of faith God has given us to perform certain tasks in his kingdom. Okay, the idea here is that uh, this is talking about something different from the saving faith that we all have, but rather it's talking about the faith we have to do things listed in this passage, such as prophesying, serving, teaching, etc. 
So the idea here would be to be honest about the way God has actually gifted you and to operate within that gifting primarily. Not saying you never do anything else, but to primarily focus yourself on that gifting rather than trying to fit a mold that you would rather be, trying to make yourself into something else that maybe you're not as gifted in. Um, to me, that seems to fit the context a little bit better, but I think both sentiments are true regardless. Um, now, you might say, well, this idea of thinking of yourself according to your faith and, and realizing that some people have different levels uh, or different abilities, different gifts, could cause disunity. And sometimes that has happened in the church. Paul spent quite a bit of time in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12 trying to hash this out, helping them understand that God has gifted people in different ways for different reasons, and that's all for the common good, that we shouldn't look at one gift as being better than another. And we see him get into some of that same kind of thing here as well, because there could be a temptation for you to say, oh, well, uh, maybe I value prophecy above any other gift, and so I'm going to think that the people that prophesy are better than the people that are primarily gifted in serving. Or I really value teaching, so I'm going to think that the people that teach are, are uh, better than the people that are primarily gifted in showing acts of mercy. And so that's why Paul goes on in verses 4 and 5 to remind us that we're one body. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This is the unity factor, right? Like, Paul really wants to try and help this Roman church be unified. Understanding that, yeah, there are going to be people amongst you that have different giftings. The Spirit has chosen to work in people in different ways. But that doesn't mean that one part's better than another. Your hand serves a different function than your mouth, and that's a good thing. They work together. You know, how weird would it be if each part of your body had its own agenda? Like, what if your right leg wanted to walk north and your left leg wanted to walk south? <laughs> that, would be, that would be ridiculous, right? You wouldn't get anywhere. Um, the body works well because it all works together as one unit. You've got all your internal stuff doing its thing that you don't even think about that's helping support all of the stuff that you see on the outside. And in some ways, the Christian body works in a very similar manner. As the body of Christ, we need to be working together in unison, understanding that God has gifted each part of it specifically in a way that helps support the whole thing. Following Jesus is a team sport. It's not an individual one, right? Like we have absolutely been called together and we need each other. When you became a Christian, you're baptized into a family and we're stuck together whether we like it or not, right? So you see this, this idea of unity actually hit on in the scripture so much. Why? We don't have a choice to just say, I don't want to be part of the church. Like that's not biblically really an option. We, we are brought together into one family. God is the one that's brought us together. Who are we to say that we should start dividing ourselves? So rather than, than showing favoritism or dividing ourselves over different gifts or preferences, what we need to do is learn how to come together and work together because we're one body. Be, the, the, having division is as silly as your hand saying that it wants to do something different than what your, the rest of your body wants to do. God's not called us to follow him in isolation. Now, we are unified, but we're diverse, right? And this this other main factor, that there's both unity and diversity. Uh, if you've been with us in this Roman series, you've actually seen 
how, how I've talked a little bit about how Paul is trying to unify the church of both Jew and Gentile. There's these two different ethnic groups that have different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different dietary preferences. We'll get to see that later. You know, different things about what they think should be done on holidays, all this kind of stuff. They're very different groups, but God has brought them together into one people. And any time that you have different cultures and religious backgrounds coming together, uh, you have diversity, and that creates a challenge. Why? The reason that diversity is challenging is because you have to learn to appreciate people that are different from you. And, and to go back to that idea of how selfish we naturally are, if that's the way we think, then we, we usually think our own way is best, or our own type of people are best, right? So the, the people that look like me are the best kind of people. The people that are gifted like me are the best kind of people. The people that uh, like the same things as me are the best kind of people. And, and honestly, guys, this is the root of a lot of, of division. This is at the root of a lot of racism. Like, like people thinking that their own way of life, the people that look like them or have the same culture as them or something like that are better than people of another. And, and you know, this is oftentimes subconscious. Like it's not even that people are always consciously thinking that, but, but unless your mind is renewed to start seeing the real value that God has given all people, it's natural for us to think that way, that your own way is just best. And so in this particular situation, Paul is talking about the diversity of giftings and how we need to work together, even understanding that we're people that are gifted in different ways. There's many different gifts that are pointed out here. And some of them may have resonated with you more than others. God has made you in a specific way. He's given you gifts to serve him well. But he wants these unique gifts not to be something that divides us into factions, where we really love spending time with the teachers, or we really love spending time with the, the people at Prophesy, or we really love spending time with the servants. But rather, these unique gifts are actually designed to bring us together because they show that we need each other. What, what kind of body would you want to, do you want to have a body that's missing its legs? Do you want to have a body that's missing its eyes or its ears or something like that? No. You see that the unique gifts, uh, they have the opportunity to either separate us or unify us, but God wants them to unify us. You see, unique gifts can separate us if we think that our gift is the best. And this is the absolute worst way to handle gifts that God has given us for his glory. But unique gifts can unify us if they allow us to see that we are healthiest together. I'm really thankful that my body has a lot of unique parts. I love each individual part, but I'm glad that my body is not made up of only that thing. And we should be thankful that God gives some of us more heavily in some areas than others because it forces us to come together as a group and help each other out. No single one of us is spiritually self-sufficient. Like God has designed us to where we have to work, lean on each other and, and help each other continue to be built up in the people he wants us to be. And so we all have ways that we can be blessed by other parts of the body, and we all have ways that we can bless other parts of the body. But we only bless others if we actually use those gifts. And that's what brings me on to that fourth theme. And this is what I'm going to spend the vast majority of our time on, which is activity. Right? We've seen that we need to be humble. We've seen both unity and diversity. And now we've seen activity. Paul is saying, man, God's giving you these gifts. Actually use them. Right? So just to look back here at verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
There's a theme of activity here. Get it done. Use what God's given you. God hasn't given us all these gifts just so that we can sit on them and do nothing. And so Paul gives us some guidance on how to do that. Now, I want to mention here, this is not like a fully exhaustive list of all of the gifts that God gives Christians. Um, He has seven of them listed here, but we can look at other uh, places of Scripture and see other gifts pointed out. I don't have time to talk about every single gift that's listed in the Bible today, so I'm just going to focus on these seven. Uh, But know that this is just kind of a a representative sample. And I would also say that even as, as Paul is saying, man, really lean into your giftings here. Don't use that as an excuse to say like, okay, well, if I'm gifted in teaching, that means I never have to serve. Like, we're all called to be servants, right? Like, in in a a certain sense, we're all called to teach each other because we're all making disciples. Like, so you're going to be doing all these kind of things. But there's still this idea of like, okay, where should I prioritize the way that I'm serving? Where most of my time and energy is being spent. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. So let's talk about this first one that he lists, prophecy. It says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. So first you have to ask the question, what is prophecy? And uh, what does it mean to do this in proportion to our faith? So first let's talk about what is prophecy. Prophecy relates to speaking a word from the Lord. All right, when you look at the Old Testament prophets, uh, you see that they were consistently people that were speaking a word from the Lord. Oftentimes they were simply calling people back to obedience to something that God had already said. Right, So God had already in the first five books of the Bible laid out all these things about blessings and curses that would happen, whether they were obedient or disobedient to the law. And so a lot of the Old Testament prophets, you see them calling people back to this and warning them, hey, if if you don't repent, these kind of things are going to happen, which God had already foretold. So they were speaking from the Lord in that sense where God had still given them a timely message to say, hey, my people need to hear this right now. Go and tell them. We see other times, though, uh, where they actually get to see into the future a little bit and give a more full picture of what's going to come, that God has communicated with them about that. And we see some examples of people prophesying in the New Testament as well, and I want to go through some of these examples so we can get a better understanding of what this is. Let's look at Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is kind of like what you might think of as the classic view of prophecy, that idea of like somebody giving, getting a vision of the future and being able to relay that. And he was right. The famine actually happened. Um, and so this is cool. Uh, but it wasn't done just so that Agabus could look really cool or impress people. You see that this prophecy happened for the building up of the body. That like the people in Jerusalem needed help. So God prepared them to be able to send this gift so that they would be ready when it hit. Um, we actually see Agabus again later in Acts with a different prophecy that he hits on. Uh, here we have in Acts 21, 8 to 11. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And sure enough, Agabus was right on that as well. Paul would end up going to Jerusalem and he would end up being bound. Um, and, and so, yeah, 
we see that Agabus is a prophet. God had given him this gift to, to sometimes the spirit would move in him to be able to see something that was going to come. And he would warn the church about it, and they, they would have to respond accordingly. In the first case, they uh, prepared a gift and sent it to people in Judea so that they would be ready when the famine hit. In this case, uh, the people around Paul were like, dude, you got to not go to Jerusalem. And Paul's like, I'm, it's okay, like, I'm willing to go be bound. And they couldn't convince him, so they're just like, all right, have at it. May the Lord's will be done. Um, but in, in both of these cases, we see that God is giving a word from the Spirit to be able to, to foretell what, what's going to happen. He's speaking um, into a person's life in a, a way that is going to impact them. Um, now, I don't think that it always has to be quite this dramatic. I think there are other times where the Lord may not necessarily be telling the future, but he just wants to give you insight into a specific situation right there. We see uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. He's teaching the Corinthians how to come together and worship. He's saying, people come with all sorts of different things, these worship gatherings. Some people are coming together, and they have a hymn. We have people that sang songs. They pre prepared those for us this morning. Uh, a lesson. That's what I'm giving you right now. I prepared this lesson. A revelation, this is hitting at the prophecy, that when, when the uh, church would come together, that there would be people sometimes that had a word from the Lord that they needed to communicate to the congregation. And the same with the tongue or the interpretation, that sometimes God would move in a way that, that a person would start speaking in tongues or have an interpretation. And this was all supposed to be done for the building up of the body. Um, now, building up doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be like warm and fluffy, right? Like Agabus telling Paul that he's going to be bound <laughs> by his hands and feet. That's not a warm and fluffy type of uh, prophecy. But it was useful information for him. You know, we believe that God has spoken to us through the scripture, right? That's why we preach every Sunday from his word. I'm a huge believer in that. God's word has the power to shape our lives. And what an amazing gift this is. But that same scripture also shows us, like, sometimes God gives words to his people, prophetic words to his people, that, that's, that speak something that they need to hear at that time. And this is really cool, but it's also really scary, right? It's really cool because, man, how sweet is it that God can still speak like that, and still does speak like that to, in some ways, directly into our circumstances. But it's scary because how can you know if a word is actually from the Lord? And I think that this is where that second part about prophesying in proportion to our faith comes in. We're told that the, the person that prophesies is supposed to do so in proportion to our faith. Uh, there's actually two different ways this can be interpreted. Um, and I think I actually have, have a slide. The ESV and the NASB just give us an example of this. There's different ways that you can translate this, either in proportion to our faith or according to the proportion of his faith. And these kind of represent two different ways that, that people think this might be communicating something. Um, the first way... They're saying this means that whatever is prophesied, it has to be in accordance with our faith, meaning the, the common Christian doctrine that's already established through the teaching of the apostles and recorded in Scripture, right? So anything that, that's given in prophecy can't contradict something like that. And when it says proportion to our faith, that's, that's what those translators think it's getting at. Um, the other one about saying according to his faith is getting at this idea that whatever is prophesied must be in accordance with the faith that, that God has given that particular prophet. Uh, basically saying that the prophet must not go beyond whatever God has specifically revealed to him or her. 
So there could be a temptation to uh, maybe want to give more detail or something that the Lord has not given you. And so you kind of want to go beyond whatever that proportion of faith is that God has given you in making this prophecy. Um, since there isn't a lot of detail given here and the grammar allows for either translation, I think it's hard to say for sure which one is meant. Um, but both sentiments are undoubtedly true, right? Like both sentiments are undoubtedly true. Whatever the prophet says has to be in line with whatever the Lord has spoken. Like if he starts to say something contradictory, you know that that's not true. And at the same time, it's obviously true that you shouldn't start trying to make something up beyond whatever it is the Lord has given you if he's given you a prophetic word. Um, there, I want you to see a few other verses here about this idea of prophecy because it's, it's definitely something that was happening in the New Testament church. Uh, and because it is scary, there have to be some safeguards against it. And so you look at these verses here. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. In 1 Corinthians, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. In 1 John, uh, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, so... Nobody wants to say that the Lord has said something and be wrong about it, right? Like, and, and with that, there's a temptation to say, like, I'm just going to stay away from the whole prophecy thing entirely. And to be honest, that's been most of my life story. Like, I, I grew up in the church. It was not a very charismatic church. Um, and, and I'm thankful for, for the, my experience there and everything. But, but for me, this idea of prophecy is really terrifying. Um, be, because I honor the word of the Lord so much, this idea that... Uh, I have no way to know for sure if God has actually spoken something through a person. is really scary to me. Um, and so to be honest, I actually don't feel like I can teach much from experience here um, because I've been very hesitant to even trust that God would want to try and speak something specific through me. And I'm very um, cautious about it when somebody tries to do that for me. Uh, however, we can see that those who have the gift of prophecy are supposed to prophesy. He, he tells us, if, if prophecy, then do it in proportion to your faith. We, we see, he says, don't despise pro prophecies. So it's actually something that we as the church should be doing if God has given you that gift. We're told not to quench the spirit. And so rather than avoiding the whole thing because it's kind of spooky and we can't control it, we're supposed to test what's said. And as believers, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the scriptures. Between these, we have the ability to test what's said and to have a high degree of confidence about the validity of it. So if you believe that God's gifted you in prophecy, I encourage you to try to explore that responsibly. Um, as I said, I honestly don't feel like I personally am the best guide for you in this. Just as we said, there's different parts of the body, um, different giftings. I don't feel like this is something that I've been really gifted in. And, and I can stand up here without any shame to say that because I, I understand that I'm only part of the body. I think sometimes uh, we have a, a misunderstanding of what a pastor even is, and we think that he's supposed to be the best at everything related to Christianity, and that's just not true. I'm one part of the body just like any of the rest of you are. I have certain gifts just like any of the rest of you only have certain gifts primarily. So I honestly don't feel like I'm the greatest guide for you in this, um, but I do think that if you feel like the Lord is impressing something, a word upon your heart to give to somebody else, 
somebody I would just explore by saying, hey, like, I think that God might be saying this. I, I believe that the Lord might be trying to communicate this to you. And as you do this, you might start to get a better feel for what God, when God is giving you something to say to someone. So uh, with that being said, if you want to talk with, that, talk with me more about that, I'd love to talk with you more about it after the service or something. Um, but yeah, that, that's where we are with that. Like prophecy is a gift to the church and we're actually supposed to walk in the gifts that God has given us. Um, the next thing that he lists, he says service, right? If service in our serving. Um, service is a broad term that's used in a lot of different ways in scripture, uh, but it generally relates to doing something to care for the needs of others. Uh, okay, I'm having a little bit of fun with this. Uh, it's the Super Bowl so- Sunday and the Bengals are in it, so you got to give me grace here. Um, I-, I figured that I, I would kind of help extend this Bengals illustration to- so you can see these different parts of the body. Uh, when I think of the servants, I think of the offensive linemen, right? Like, uh, the guys that are kind of doing work to help others, they, they don't necessarily have their name in lights. You're not reading about them in the newspaper. But what they're doing is really important for empowering the, the mission overall. Uh, you could extend that on down to the support staff and the janitors that keep the locker room clean and everything like that. Um, Jesus actually held service in really, really high regard. Apparently the Bengals don't hold offensive line in very high regard, but um, that's another issue. But no, Jesus gave us a great picture of what it means to serve and the way that he lived and died. Look at what he says here in Matthew 20, uh, 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Man, Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. If God has gifted you primarily as a servant, don't be ashamed about that. Don't be sad that you might not have the most glamorous uh, position in the body, dude. Jesus was a servant, like, through and through. Like, he's the guy that literally took a towel and and, and washed his disciples' feet. You know, we see... uh, a biblical example of servants being called to an important task in Acts 6. I'm going to have a lot of examples of, from Acts in here just showing you how these different gifts have played out in the church. It says, uh, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here, the disciples were not demeaning the importance of service. They were actually uh, showing how important it was that they said, hey, we need to select really good people to do this. People that are full of wisdom and full of the spirit because this is an important task. But we need to find people that are gifted well to be able to do this. The apostles understood their primary gifting, which was that of being teachers, right? We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. But we need to make sure that somebody else is getting this thing done. They're giving us a great example of working together as the body. And so for some of you, man, like service is your jam. God's gifted you with the heart and the ability to be excellent servants, and that's a very important role that you play in the body of Christ. And there are all sorts of ways that you can activate this gift, right? That is what God wants you to do is use the gifts that he's given you. So some ways that you can, can serve. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can serve here at HBO. 
Some of you, a lot of you are already doing that. Uh, if you are feeling, hey, I, I want to get more involved and try and see what I can do to serve the church, there are all sorts of ways you can do that. We have a welcome table out back. There's a little QR code that you can scan, and that will get you connected to all sorts of different ways that you can serve in our church. Um, you can serve at one of our partner organizations that are doing great gospel work. We have these people come in here every now and then. We talked about one of them already this morning, which is Life Forward. We're doing the baby bottle thing for them. They're doing awesome work. Uh, sharing the gospel with women that are in uh, uh, crisis pregnancy situations and doing everything they can to empower those women to have their babies and be good mothers. Uh, th that's a great place that you can go and serve people. Um, Lord's Gym. I, I, uh, th these people are doing fantastic work uh, in a few different places. The one I'm most connected to is out in Price Hill. Uh, they're helping people that are getting out of prostitution and out of drug addiction and just being a, a safe place for people to get in off the streets. Uh, they're helping... Um, mentor kids. They've started a lot of sports initiatives. They've got football teams and basketball teams going now, uh, using that as an opportunity to disciple kids. They're doing fantastic work, and they're always looking for more volunteers. Uh, Wesley Chapel, my wife used to work there and still volunteers there a lot. Uh, they're doing good work in Over the Rhine, where they run an after-school program that's helping educate kids and, and teach them about Jesus. Uh, City Gospel Mission, I know John goes there really consistently. I think he's there every week. They're helping guys get out of homelessness and drug addiction. Uh, th there's, there's so many great places to be able to, to go and serve. If, you are, uh, if God has gifted you in this way, I encourage you to really like lean into that and do that. And then finally, just have an attitude of a servant in your daily life. The, the more that you think about this, like there's so many ways that you can serve people around you on a regular basis, right? Just things as simple as giving rides to people that need them or like letting people borrow your car, uh, feeding people, babysitting. I have people serve me all the time doing that. Um, D delivering stuff to people that need it, helping people move, washing dishes. By the way, those of you that have roommates that are servants, don't take advantage of them washing your dishes. Uh, love them well. Um, but yeah, there, there's so many ways that you can activate this gift, and God wants you to do this for the good of his body. He also talks about teaching. He says, the one who teaches in his teaching. Um, now, this is clearly was one of the primary giftings of the apostles. We saw that in the Acts 6 passage where they said that they were going to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Uh, in our football analogy, these are coaches, right? Uh, they're, they're playing the role of being able to uh, impart information to, the, to others that's going to help them do their job better. So for me, this is one of the primary ways that God has gifted me. Uh, that I spend a ton of my time studying the scripture, uh, trying to understand it, and trying to do it in a way, uh, convey it to you in a way that you can understand it, not just so that you can be smarter, but so that your life can actually be changed by what you've learned. Teachers play a very important role in the church. Um, at Acts 8, 30 to 31, we have an example of a teacher doing something big. It says, uh, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. There's this guy in a chariot that's reading Isaiah the prophet. It says, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. That's what teachers are doing. We're coming up, we're sitting with people, and, and we're trying to help them understand the word of God so they can walk in it. And that, Philip uh, led that man to the Lord, that Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot. He led him to the Lord. He was baptized. And, and who knows what great things God went on to do with him after that. Um, from the time I was really young, I started following Jesus, I always had a serious draw to the scriptures. Like, like God transformed my life through that. I would say I became a Christian through my own study of the scriptures. Um, and, and he's always just given me a lot of good insight into them. And so I've seen that this is a way that he's gifted me. Uh, and not only that, but he's given me the ability to be able to communicate what I learned to others. 
And some of you guys have this gift as well. And if so, like, you should apply yourself to using it. There's all sorts of different ways that you can activate that. You don't need this stage to be able to do that, right? Like, there's all sorts of other ways that you can teach beyond just preaching a sermon in front of a, a church. You can teach people one-on-one, right? Like, you can, in discipleship context, be walking through Scripture, much like Philip was with the Ethiopian eunuch right here, helping him understand the Word of God. Uh, you can teach a Bible study that you start. I remember when I was in Bowling Green, as I, I was very involved in H2O. I helped lead a life group there. But I also just started my own Bible study in my dorm. And, and I, we, it was simple. We'd open up the scriptures, we'd walk through them, and God did really cool stuff with that. Me and my, my roommate from college just did that for all three years that we lived in the dorm of Bowling Green. Um, you can teach in a life group. You know, some of you guys have a gift that, that you should be exercising there. And you can be looking for different ways to be able to use that. Um, you can do videos, blogs, podcasts, whatever. There's, there's all sorts of things that you can do to be able to exercise this kind of gift. Um, but as, you're t- as you teach, remember, it's not about you. None of these gifts are about you. I think it's easy for the servant to remember that sometimes. I think it's hard for the teacher to remember that sometimes. Uh, there, there can be a danger where a lot of us want to become teachers because it uh, can be seen as a more glamorous thing. There's a lot of eyes on you. Everyone likes having people listen to them, right? Like, who doesn't want to have people paying attention to them? Um, I know some of you are like, I, I hate it when people pay attention to me. But for a lot of us, we, we want people paying attention to us. And uh, we need to be very careful about that. There's actually a warning that's given where, yes, if you're a teacher, teach, use your gift. But don't just be like, oh, I want to I go be a teacher so I can't have people look at me or anything like that. It's actually a kind of dangerous position. James says this in James 3, 1 and 2. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. And he goes on to talk a little bit more about the tongue. But he's basically saying if you're a teacher, you're using your mouth a lot. And guess where we make a lot of mistakes? When we use our mouths right? You, you have a, a sacred responsibility as a teacher to help guide people, but there's also a good chance that, that you might mess up. And so you're saying, take this thing seriously. You're, you're going to incur a stricter judgment when you do this, so make sure that, that you're taking this seriously and that God has called you into this when you do it. Let's talk about exhortation. He says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Um, this is exhortation, not extortion, okay? We're not talking about the Sopranos, or the mafia or something like that. Uh, Very, very different thing here. (laughs) Exhortation is the act of encouraging someone towards a goal, okay? Um, So in our football analogy, these are the fans, right? Like they're they're the good ones, not the fair-weathered ones, but the, the, the fans that are in it, they're cheering, they're helping their team to stay motivated to do uh, what they need to do. And Barnabas was clearly one of these guys for the early church. Barnabas is such a cool dude when you read scripture. Uh, so it's like everything you see about him is, is awesome. Uh, look at this. We're introduced to him in Acts uh, chapter, oh, I don't even think I have the verse here. Acts chapter 4, I think it is. Uh, Acts 4 or 5, uh, verses 36. Uh, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this passage shows that Barnabas is a great giver, which we'll get to in a second. But it also shows us that, man, he's a great encourager. His name was actually Joseph. But they called him Barnabas because he was such an encourager. They, the apostles gave him that name, which means son of encouragement. 
Dude, like, how cool is that? Like, the, the apostles, these are dudes that hung out around Jesus. If there's anybody that should have been motivated for their mission, it was these guys. But you know who came alongside and really helped encourage them and exhort them in their mission? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Man, uh, can you imagine what a help it must have been for Paul to have Barnabas on his journey? You see that Paul goes around, he does all these amazing things, he writes all these letters, he plants these churches. You know who's side by side with him on his first missionary journey? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And man, I'm sure that Paul needed it because when he was going around, he was getting beaten, he was getting driven out of cities, he was getting put in prison, all this kind of stuff. How great would it be to have Barnabas as your wingman that's there helping exhort you and keep, like, urging you on in the mission that you have. You know, guys, following Jesus is a marathon and not a sprint. You know, in a sprint, you can see the finish line the whole time, like pretty, pretty, well, I don't know, you're bouncing around a little bit, but whatever, it's close. It's like, you can keep yourself motivated. You're right there by the finish line. With a marathon, you can't see the finish line for most of it. The, the, the vast majority of the race, you've got to just keep that goal in your head of what you're, you're running towards. And so most marathons have people along the way that are there just cheering you on, encouraging you, helping remind you of what you're doing, helping remind you to press on towards the finish line. And that's what the exhorters are doing in the church. So there's ways to activate this gift, guys. Uh, one thing is honestly just by, by speaking, like speak words of encouragement. A lot of the times we're, we're really encouraged by things that people do, but we, we don't do a good job of saying it. And so one of the ways I think that you can encourage us and spur the church on towards love and good deeds is to tell people when you appreciate the things that they're doing. Like let people know how they've been impacting you. Um, you, you can send texts to people, just showing them that, that you want to encourage them, you're thankful for what they're doing. Or that you want them to, to press on towards the Lord. Uh, I know a lot of people like to write notes. I, I get people that do this stuff for me all the time. I'm very thankful for it. My wife is good on getting on me about, like, hey, if somebody has done something good, like, let them know. Um, she's, she's a better exhorter than I am. Uh, you can honestly exhort people just even by listening to them, too. Like, I think being a good listener can be an encouragement to people. And finally, I would say, like, rejoice with people. When God's doing good stuff in somebody's life, rejoice over it. We're going to go back to our friend Barnabas, the expert encourager, to, to see this. Acts 11, 22 to 24. Uh, this is when some Gentiles started getting saved. It says, The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Man, that, that's exhortation. Come along and just rejoicing in what's God, what God was doing. He wasn't like, oh, these are Gentiles. That's kind of sus that they received the Holy Spirit. They're saved. He's like, no, I'm rejoicing over what God is doing. And I'm going to encourage you to press on and remain faithful to the Lord. Let's talk about giving. That's also something Barnabas was good at. Um, we saw that he sold the, the tract of land. Okay, for this one, I've got... Uh, that's Mike Brown. You might not know who that is. Uh, but he's the owner of the Bengals. He's not actually known for being super generous, but whatever. I had to work with what I got. The, <laughs> the, the givers, man, these are the people that are, uh, they're, they're funding so much good work behind the scenes. And so, you know, Mike Brown, even if we do think he's a little bit tight sometimes, uh, he, he's still helping fund the team to, to, to empower them to do what they need to do. And uh, the givers, man, they're kind of like the guys in the boiler room that are generating power for the rest of the building. 
for everything else that happens. They might not be front and center, but their generosity empowers others to do things in very significant ways. I am here preaching to you today because I have a whole army of people that empower me to do this by their generosity, right? Like me and all the other staff on our church raise our salary for a living, which basically means the first thing that you do when you get hired by H2O is that you get to go around and start asking a bunch of people if they want to contribute financially to pay your salary because y'all don't have enough money to do it. So that was supposed to be funnier than it was. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, no, we, we, we go around and, and do that, right? Because we say, hey, there's this really important mission that we have. We want to reach the college campus. We believe it's one of the most strategic mission fields in the world. We believe that the, the harvest is ripe there, and we need people to go. But guess what? We need people that can empower us to be able to be on that campus. And so, so praise God that there's so many people have said, yes, you know what? I can't be there on the campus myself, but I am going to give money so that you can do it. And this is, this is the same thing with missionaries that get sent all around the world. Like, we have missionaries across the globe. Why? Uh, working in some of the most unreached places because generous givers have empowered them to be able to be there. So that they don't have to, to worry about uh, devoting so much of their time towards working a different job, but they can devote themselves full time to the, the ministry they're doing because of these givers. You know what? Jesus had a support team. Look at this. A lot of people have, have never really noticed this when they read the Gospels. Look at this in Luke 8, 1 to 3. Soon afterwards, he, being Jesus, began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom the seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Jesus had a team of supporters that were going around empowering his mission. You know what? Yeah, Jesus was God, but he was God in the flesh. He needed to eat, too. Like, life takes money. And, and uh, praise God for the generous givers that finance the ministry that we're able to, to have. We are one body, and I am so thankful for the members that give so that I can fulfill my primary role in the body. And I'll tell you what, even as a person that doesn't make a lot of money, I, I love giving. Like, it's, it's fun. It excites me. I love being able to empower good ministry initiatives. But I am thankful for people uh, that, that do this to empower me to be here and to empower so many people across the globe to be doing the mission work they're doing and all sorts of different organizations to be providing the help that they provide. So you guys have a lot of ways that you can activate this gift in your life. If God has, has, has gifted you as a, a generous giver, um, one, you, you can give to the church, right? So like tithing, I think, is a healthy practice for anybody, uh, not, not because it lines our pockets or anything, but because it helps fund our mission. All this kind of, uh, the sound, all this kind of stuff that's bought uh, by, by the money that you guys give. When we do things um, like your life group outreach stuff that you do, or, or even the food for the Super Bowl party or whatever, things like that which are designed to create spaces for you guys to be able to engage with each other and with those that don't know Jesus, like church funds are going towards that. We, we are, as a church, give a bunch of money to try to help send people. Like we, we have money available to help empower people to go off on missions to unreached places. We give um, to, to other missionaries that are in those places. And you know what? Not only can you give to, the, to your, your local church, which I would encourage you to do, but also like give to missionaries. Uh, I told you, all of our staff are funded by outside givers. Um, I personally support other missionaries, some that are 
a couple that are in a country doing Bible translation work, right? A, a very restricted country, actually, uh, doing Bible translation work. Um, there, there are tons of great organizations that you can give to. I mentioned those partner organizations that you can serve with. All of them also need money, too. So, like, you, you can give money towards those groups. Uh, they're all doing great work here in Cincinnati. And there's also awesome groups that are doing fantastic work across the world. Uh, a couple that I would particularly recommend, Samaritan's Purse does great job with a lot of disaster relief stuff that comes up both nationally and internationally. And uh, the International Mission Board uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention does fantastic work in sending missionaries out all over the globe. Um, and the last thing I would say is that you can just be a person that lives generously in general. Like a person that's just looking to contribute to needs however you can. A person that, that wants to give money to the person that's down on their luck right now. Or, um, I don't know, buys lunch for somebody when they need it. Or something like that. Like just live as a generous person. Let's talk about leading. Uh, the one who leads, he says, is supposed to do this with zeal. Leaders are people that set the tone for the direction of the whole group and uh, they help pull everybody together into alignment to work towards a common goal. And so in our fun little Bengals analogy here, uh, I could have gone with Zach Taylor, but I already used coach as a teacher, and come on, Joe Burrow is the leader of the Bengals. Um, you, you see, I, I have a bit of a crush on Joe Burrow, but um, <laughs> the, the guy is just, like, he, he's such a fantastic leader. Like, he helps set the tone for the team, he, he's taken us from being uh, the worst team in the whole NFL two years ago before he got here and has transformed the mentality of this team to believe that they, they can actually win and that they can accomplish this goal together. And that's what leaders do. Like leaders help bring people into alignment and they help set the tone for a group to believe that they can accomplish a certain goal and they help direct the team in how they can do that. And so we need leaders like this in the church. Um, leaders are, are gifted in directing people and mobilizing them to work together. And uh, this is, the apostles served this purpose in the early church, and the, the elders in churches do this today. Um, but there are other levels of leadership that you can still have. Like, leadership is primarily about influence. Who is it that, that you're influencing to be able to work together towards a common goal? And uh, leaders, it says that they're supposed to do so with zeal. Uh, some of your translations might say that you do so with diligence, but the idea is the same, that you have to apply yourself seriously and earnestly to this work. Being a leader is difficult. It's challenging, um, and it takes a lot of energy. Leaders are people that are oftentimes, like, uh, directing others, mobilizing others. Uh, they, they don't have the same kind of oversight, and so you need to have a lot of energy to, to do this job, and you need to take it seriously because if you slack as a leader, it starts to impact the other people that you're leading as well. And so it's not surprising to me that Paul encourages the leaders to do their job with zeal. How can you activate this gift? Um, well, one thing is you, you can lead here at H2O. There's different ministries that you can lead in, uh, whether it's helping lead a life group, whether it's leading the worship team, um, whatever. But there, there's other contexts that you can lead in too. Just like being a leader at your workplace, whatever your job is, uh, that if, if God has gifted you in this area of leadership, that you can be a person that helps um, first off, that does an excellent job at your work, and second, that actually tries to diffuse that enthusiasm into other people, to be able to get them to, to perform better and work uh, together more seamlessly. Um, I actually think that that kind of influence will give you gospel influence in your workplace as well, uh, because people are interested in listening to what it is that you have to say. Um, let's finally talk about acts of mercy here. It says, the one who does acts of mercy 
with cheerfulness. The last gift mentioned uh, on our list is doing acts of mercy. And I think this has a lot of crossover with service, might even have some crossover with giving, um, as those two things oftentimes um, play a role in doing acts of mercy. In our Bengals illustration, this is the medical staff. So, you know, guys get injured, they need help, someone to show mercy on them, and uh, the trainers come out and do the best they can there. People that, that are showing acts of mercy are doing so um, when they're specifically coming alongside people that are in, in time of great need, that, that need somebody to have some compassion on them. And it's interesting that this is, uh, we're called to do this with cheerfulness. A lot of the gifts you just like, if teaching, teach. You know, if serving, serve, right? With this, it's, it, it, acts of mercy, he tells us a specific way that it should be done. And it's with cheerfulness. And I find that interesting because I think that sometimes showing mercy can actually be really difficult and really challenging. Because you're, you're called to help people that are in a spot where it becomes an inconvenience on you because of the level of need that they have. And it can be hard to do that with cheerfulness. Um, recently in my life, God, I believe, has been calling me to help a woman that, frankly, I've had a difficult time sometimes showing mercy to because I don't agree with a lot of the decisions she's making. Um, sometimes I feel like she's just trying to use me, whatever. So, sometimes it's a challenge for me to try and show mercy to her with cheerfulness. But it's really important that I do because the attitude with which I, I show mercy to her ha communicates something about the way that I love her. And it communicates something about the way that God loves her. And so as we help people, God's not calling us to come along the sick and the hurting and the broken begrudgingly and be like, ah, yeah, I'll help this homeless guy because somebody's got to do it and I'm going to feel guilty if I don't. It's no, I want to come alongside because this is what Jesus wants to do. He, he wants to help the hurting and the broken with cheerfulness. Right, like the, the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us a guy that's a great example of this. And he didn't just begrudgingly help the man that was beaten on the side of the road. He, he went the extra mile. He took the guy to the inn. He gave money to the innkeeper to take care of him. He said, I'll pay you whatever. You, if it costs anything more, I'll pay that when I come back. Man, that, that's showing acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is what Jesus did, right? Like acts of mercy can be really hard, but the, the, the person who does it realizes that it's worth it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, there is no greater act of mercy that has ever been shown than what Jesus showed us at the cross. And when, it, when he showed this with cheerfulness, it doesn't mean that Jesus was smiling the whole way up to Calvary. Okay, I don't think that's what was going on there. But he did it because he had the joy set before him. He understood that he wanted to show this. And that, that's why, you know, when Peter said, I'm not going to let you go and do this, I'm not going to let you go and die, he said, get behind me, Satan. When, when Peter uh, sliced off the ear of the guard that, that came to come and arrest Jesus, Jesus healed it and let them take him away, saying, if I wanted to, I could have called legions of angels to come and deliver me. Jesus didn't necessarily go singing, laughing, and dancing to the cross, but he did so with cheerfulness because he understood the value of it. He understood the joy that was set before him. And so as we... Go to show acts of mercy. I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. It might not always be pleasant. It might actually take you to a place of great sacrifice. 
But when you do it, may you do it remembering that it's worth it because you're getting to love somebody. And there's only two things that are important in this world, loving God and loving people. Those are the only two things that are important in this whole world. The, the money or the time or whatever that you've sacrificed in showing the act of mercy was worth it if you're doing it with cheerfulness because you have an opportunity to both love God and love people in that moment. And so how do we activate this gift? Well, I think that, that we have to have, we have to cultivate hearts that are compassionate, that learn to do things like help the poor, pray for the sick, advocate for the powerless. Do what you can as you see people that are in situations that require mercy, that you, you do what you can to help them. God tested me in this literally last night. So I was working late on this sermon last night. Um, I got done around 1.30. I was working on it at 1.30 a.m. I was uh, somewhere else working on it, so I started to drive home. And there's a guy that's flying a sign out the corner of Vine and uh, McMillan at 1.30 a.m. Like, I see a lot of guys flying signs around Clifton, but 1.30 a.m., I mean, come on, that's a weird time to be flying a sign. And so I really want to get home. I've been, I've been working for like 12 hours straight that day. I haven't hardly seen my wife all day. And I just, I want to get home. It's 1.30. I know I've got to get up and preach in the morning. And uh, so I drive past him. And I get around to my house, and I'm just thinking, I'm about to preach tomorrow morning about showing acts of mercy. And I literally just drove past a guy that it's freezing cold, and he's out on the corner with a sign. And so I drive back around to, to pull up next to him. I'm just like, hey, man, what's your name? And start to, to get to know him a little bit. And, um, you know, just try to learn a little of his story. I, I give him all the money that I have. I usually don't have much cash on me. Um, and I'm not always, it's not always the best idea to give money to homeless people. But in this situation, I felt like it was something I was supposed to be doing. Um, and, yeah, it was just an example of, like, man, I was so thankful that I did that, you know, and it's like, that's an example of the word of God having an impact on your life, right, because I, I, in my flesh, did not want to do that, and I guarantee if I had not just been studying the scripture, there's no way I would have done that, there's no way I would have stopped in the first place, or even come back around to help him, but because of God's word and his conviction on my life, is like, this is something I need to go and do, and so, all that to say, man, like, God wants you to activate your gifts, because they, they both bless others and bless you. Even though that was a little bit of an inconvenience for me last night, I ended up going home way happier. Like I was way more blessed by doing that than by not doing that, even though it was a minor sacrifice. And I think too often as Christians, we just like sit on the sidelines with our gifts. And God wants us to be mobilized as the church. Right? Like he, he's given you gifts to be able to use them. And, and for whatever reason, whether it's, it's fear or laziness or whatever, like we just sit on the sidelines and don't use the things that God's given us. And he's given you his spirit. And he, he wants his church to be a vibrant body. A vibrant body that is humble, united, diverse, and active. And that's what Paul's getting at here, man. May, may we be people that uh, are, are humble. We realize, man, none of this stuff is about us. We're saved purely by God's grace. We are united in one. There's not one of us that's better than another. There's no certain part that's better than another. It's by God's grace we're saved. It's by God's grace that we have gifts. And we are diverse, knowing that God has, has given you a unique role to play. And if you're not playing it, that means that the body is lacking. 
And so that you need to activate that, man, that, that, you, that you would be someone that really presses into, Lord, how, how have you gifted me? How do you want me to devote my time and energy and to actually go and do that? Imagine the impact, like how will the world be impacted if the whole body of Christ is mobilized? If every day you're really trying to press into the gifting that God has given you and glorify him with that, man, that that starts to move us closer towards that kingdom I was talking about at the beginning, right? Now, I'm not saying we can usher that in by ourselves. We're waiting for Jesus to return to make that happen. But the more the body of Christ is mobilized and active, this world starts to look a little bit more like that one we saw in Revelation 22. So uh, with that being said, I'm going to close here. The band can come back up. And um, I just want to pray for you guys. Lord, we, uh, we just love you and I thank you that um, you've called us to be your people. God, we just humbly come before you and admit that uh, it's by your grace we're saved. There's nothing that we did to earn our salvation, our standing with you. And because of that, God, we pray that you'd make us people that are unified that work together as one team, that love each other really well and support each other really well. And, and people that, that celebrate the diversity of your body, God, that understand the, the value of the different giftings that people have and that we would each look to, to use the gifts that you've given us, God, and that we would encourage each other to use the gifts that, that you've given us. Lord, I thank you that you hear our prayers. And I thank you, God, that you want to continue to do great work here. So I pray for your body as a whole, Lord, across the globe, the one body of Christ that we're a part of, and I pray for this little local expression of it here at H2O. May we be faithful to you, God. We love you, and we look forward to the day your kingdom comes in fullness. But right now, Lord, help us to live faithfully where we are. We love you, and we pray this in your son's awesome name.